camp out in chapter 5 and cover at least the first half of it today. So I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to go ahead and read and then pray and we'll dive right in. If you would, please follow along with me. I think it's on your handout. It's Ephesians uh, 4.1 and then chapter 5. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we give you this morning, what a funny thing to say, it's yours, not ours to give. So we take in this morning. Help us to be present. Help us to be ready. Help us to be open to hear Your voice. Sometimes we're scared to hear Your voice. What a silly thing. Because Your voice is life. With Your voice, You spoke everything into existence. And with Your voice, You can speak everything out of it that doesn't need to be there. So help us to be okay with Your voice this morning. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I. There's one command in the first half of Ephesians, just by way of reminder, that's important. And it's important because you're a human being, not a human doing. I'm letting that sink in for a second. Can't start off with a bullet like that. Right? You're, you're a human being, you're not a human doing. Which means who you are in Christ precedes and informs, motivates, changes everything about what you do for Him. Who you are in Christ influences everything. 
And I know that's been repeated because I've listened to the talks I've missed. And I keep hearing that the indicative precedes the imperative, which is a very seminary way of saying being is before doing. Always. Okay? And so what's going to change here with chapter 4 is uh, not Paul the Apostle, but Paul Goebel the pastor uh, showed you last week is that all of a sudden there's kind of a litany of commands that start to come out. A bunch of doing language. Okay? And uh, I don't know about you, I, I think it sometimes is innate to just being a guy, but we like to get stuff done. Right? We like the pra- So what's the point? What's the application to this talk? I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been told you need to be, make sure there's an application, and it's because we have such an urge to do. And the last half of this book is certainly that, but it's not just about doing, it's about revealing. There's going to be uh, commands with lists of things, and it's almost like a thermometer and a compass to test and see what your spiritual temperature is in each area and what direction you're heading. What's your true north? And that's important because if you speed ahead without checking those things, you might end up farther along in the wrong direction and feeling colder than you've ever felt before. You've got to keep your thermometer and your compass in hand. Okay? And so there's, and I'm going to call it this way, there's these supra commands that, that take place. They're the fountainheads that take place for all the others. And 4.1 is one of those. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There's another one in 5.1, and then there's another one in 6.10. I already promised we won't get to chapter 6 today. Okay? But 4.1 and 5.1 are so closely related that we, we almost have to start with 4.1 in order to understand what Paul's getting to when he says what he does in 5.1, which is one of my favorite verses in all of Ephesians. Okay? So he urges us, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay? And Paul, the pastor, spoke about how there's this old self and new self. And the new self is learning to walk. And it's, it's not easy because it's almost like uh, there's this spiritual dichotomy that's in each of us. And the truth is your identity is only new self. But the old self is like that dying thing that just slowly is dying and won't quite go away. It grabs you by the ankles as you're walking and it pulls you backwards and tries to flip you in the other direction. And the forces of darkness love to play to the old self. I would even say the playground of darkness is the old self. That's where you're going to get tempted. That's where you're going to get tried. That's where you're going to get pulled. And it's actually pretty genius. The best way to derail you is to play on your old habits. Right? The worst thing you can do to someone who's on a diet is grab a donut and put it at their seats and when they arrive, it's just sitting there. What are you doing when you do that? You're playing on the old self. They're trying to develop new appetites and a new way of living and you put a donut in their seat. Right? I love doing stuff like that to people on diets. And it's only because I'm 37 and haven't had to really do one yet. Not really. Right? And so there's this walk, and it's really, it's a, it's a slow uh, process where the new self is swallowing up the old self. 
and you're walking in a new direction. And initially, it's so exciting because it's like a new lease on life. But that old self is like a hungry dog, and it will come running after your ankles. So we have to walk in a manner that's worthy, right? Now, walk. If you've been in the church, you've heard of the Christian life as a walk. Part of me takes issue with the Apostle Paul for using that phrase. Because walking's easy. There's, there's very little about the transformed, in Christ, Christian life that feels easy, right? The shedding of the old self is not easy work. The walking into the new you is not easy work. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, because he's an apostle, calls it walking. Some of you may take issue with that because walking has now in your seasoned years of life become a difficult thing again. But you know, walking isn't easy. You ever seen a one-year-old start? I mean, I remember. You call it walking as soon as a step's taken. That's not walking. Come on, new parents. That's stumbling. It's not walking. Right? It's hard. It's hard to learn to walk in this new self. Because the first step is so contrary to everything you've known. And the second step is the same. And you're going to fall flat on your face, aren't you? And you're going to get up and keep going again. But, but like those parents, there's a celebration taking place with each and every step of the walk and step of the way. It beckons for you to have some patience with yourself as you try to walk into this new self. If you're new to it and you're stumbling, what you don't need is someone to come up behind you and shove you in the back. Can you imagine if I did that to my one-year-old son two years ago? After he took a couple steps, if as a loving father I walked up behind him and gave him a shove, right? Don't catch that on video. No, it's a walk. It's, it's incredibly difficult at first, but by year four or five, guess what? It starts to become second nature, doesn't it? You start to run. And, and then running looks a little awkward at first. It's more arms than legs. You ever seen a four or five-year-old run? Man, if their legs could catch up with their arms, they'd be bolt. They'd be setting new records. Right? And then at about years nine or ten, what happens? Well, it's not just running, it's racing. One of my greatest prides was being the fastest kid in Ben Franklin Elementary School. Only a short kid who's not going to be tall enough to play basketball or big enough to play football is going to brag about how fast he is, right? Racing is it's, it's so beyond just walking. But it's not beyond walking. That's where it starts. There's an essence of walking and racing. Does that make sense? And I, I purposefully use years 9 or 10 because uh, for those who are new to the new self, who've never thought about it that way, okay, that this immeasurable, timeless love of God in Christ Jesus that's being birthed in you by the Holy Spirit 
that you're learning to walk into that. Have some patience with yourself, much like a father would get behind you and celebrate the fact that you are taking steps. But it's also an admonishment. Because if you've been aware of the new self, and you've been feeding the old self, you need a shove. If you're at year 9 or 10, but walking as if you're in year 1, you need a shove. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that the Lord Jesus Christ has given you. And that's why Paul talks about it, okay? When you walk, it's slow, it's steady, and the direction makes all the difference. That's why you need a thermometer, but it's even more so why you need a compass. What is your true north? Towards what are you walking? There is no stagnancy and there is no neutrality in the Christian walk. You are either going towards God or you are going away from Him. There's no standstill. You are either feeding and walking in the new self or you are feeding and walking in the old. We can easily think that there's a sticky middle ground and feel spiritually like we're in quicksand. But the reality is you're either going towards or you're going away. Okay? So let me ask you as we, we dive into this, how, how is your walk? Or maybe a better question would be, is, is what direction are you walking in? Is there a, a Godwardness, a new selfness, an in Christness to your life? Or are you simply following the pattern of the world and walking away from it? Spiritual dryness sometimes is just a season of feeling dry. But spiritual dryness, sometimes it's a longer season than we'd like to admit. There's walking involved. And we need to reorder our steps. We need to kick the dog. We need to be reminded, in Christ you have received timeless, immeasurable love from God. The end of Ephesians 3. Its height, its depth, its breadth, and its width are beyond anything you can think or imagine. And in Christ, He's given that to you. And by the Holy Spirit, He starts to shed, He starts to pour that out in your heart. Where this transformation starts here, not here. It starts to live itself out of you. You walk in newness of life. How's your walk? Gentlemen, how is your walk? And then comes chapter 5. It continues this idea of walking. okay? And it's going to tell us three things, and it will get practical if you're wondering if we're going to stay in the clouds. We're not. We're going to get real practical. okay? Chapter 5 has three walking phrases. It says walking in self-sacrificial love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. But before it does that, there's the command in chapter 5, Verse 1. We can't skip it. And it says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, This is uh, taking walking and making it uh, imitating. 
It's not a different thing. It's an expansion of the exact same thing. Not just are you walking, but how are you walking? Who are you being while you are walking? Okay? And it says, imitate God as a beloved child. This is not rocket science either. Once you were a small child. When you were a small child, I promise you that either mom and or dad, likely dad, usually the male child looks at the male father figure as something to emulate and to be like. Now at some point, dad screws that up. I say that half jokingly and I say it half seriously. I'm a dad myself. My oldest is now aware there's things that she does not want to imitate about me. My youngest, I think he learned pretty quick there's things not to imitate about me. But it's natural for Davis, my son, to be born and to look at me and say, I want to be just like that. And let me pause real quickly and say this. Some of you have had fathers worth imitating till the day's over. And some of you have had fathers that you don't know it or you do, you're likely living your life trying not to be like him. Okay? The good news of the gospel is that you have a heavenly father who is always worth imitating. And that's the point of this verse. You're not just walking. You're imitating. And the thing that you're trying to mimic is really a one you're trying to mimic. And in Him is all goodness, all self-sacrificial love, all wisdom, and all light. All the things we're going to be told to walk in, He is. Okay? And I had hard times with my dad, but growing up, he was my hero. Okay? My dad has a mustache, which means he shaves, but not really. Well, I decided at a very young age that I was going to shave, but not really like my dad. You know what I did? I took the razor that I had seen him use and forgot the shaving cream that he always used. Burned the tar out of my little face. I looked embarrassed because my face was red for the entire day. Right? Uh, I remember the little toy tyke's lawnmower walking next to him when he's mowing the lawn. I'm thinking I'm doing exactly what dad does. I want to be just like dad. And he's thinking, here's future unpaid employment. This is great. <laughs> right? Love mowing the lawn, son. Love mowing the lawn, son. And I think about age eight, he took advantage of that. And if that's too early, we'll delete that from the recording. But I really think it was about age eight when I first started pushing a gas power lawnmower. Right? I remember taking batting practice for my dad at J.C. Park in Wichita Falls, Texas. My dad was a great baseball player. Spent some time in the minor league system. So he wasn't an excellent baseball player. But I, I had a dad who I, I wanted to be, I wanted to hit like he hit. I wanted to field like he field. I wanted to throw like he threw. And it was confusing for me because I was left-handed and he was right-handed. And I'd never told him this when I was a kid, but I always wished I could switch hands. Why? I wanted to be like my dad. And it was confusing when he would hit from the right side and try to teach me while I'm hitting from the left side, right? I remember uh, after he threw me batting practice, he said, do you want to throw me batting practice one day? And I was like, yes! And he's just jacking home runs over the fence. Whack! Whack! And I thought it was the coolest thing. I just wanted to be just like my dad. It was a 200-foot fence. 
But I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that was easy to do. I thought my dad was awesome. Perhaps one of the strangest and most fondest memories from my mind is this double uh, XL tattered uh, comfort cotton. You know what comfort cotton is? T-shirts that feel like a blanket, like really, uh, where, where you're almost wanting to kind of rub yourself when you have it on, but then you don't want to do that because of what I just did, and it looks really awkward, right? But it's so comfortable, and, and this cage construction, which was my uncle's company in Wichita Falls, a cage construction, gray comfort cotton t-shirt, way oversized for any child. My oldest sister wore it to bed. It was handed down after a couple of holes and a couple of scrapes and, and bruises. And it was given to my middle sister who wore it to bed. And it was handed down to me. I already told you I wasn't very big as a child. And I remember wearing that gray cage construction t-shirt and you know what was crazy about it? It wasn't just because I wanted to be like my dad, who also had a gray cage construction t-shirt that actually fit him. When I had that on, when I put that on, it was as if my dad was with me. There was a comfort in going to bed in that shirt. I wasn't afraid. There was a confidence going to bed in that shirt. I wasn't afraid. And it's because in wanting to be like my dad, there was nothing that gave me greater confidence and greater peace and greater assurance than to just put him on. And it was ridiculous. He's way too large for me. But you know what? I'm going to grow up into that shirt, aren't I? To put it differently, it's going to fit me one day. And that's a beautiful picture of what imitation is as a dearly beloved child. You are putting something on that is far too large for you to fit in right now. But as you walk, you grow. And as you grow, it starts to fit a little better. And it starts with this deep desire to want to imitate the One who has put Himself on, has put Himself in you. Grow up into Him. Walk in Him. Rest in Him. Be an imitator of God as a dearly beloved child. Okay? And the rest of chapter 5 is very practically going to tell you in specific areas of life. It starts with the individual life. It moves to the married life. It goes to the working life. It talks about relationships. Chapter 5 is full of practical application. But it starts with you recognizing you have been given timeless, immeasurable love from a heavenly Father who stands behind you on this walk and appropriately applauds you even as you stumble and appropriately shoves you as you need to get going. And He tells you to put on this new self and grow into it and to walk in newness and fullness of life. Are you with me, brothers? And then He says this, it's not just walking that matters, son, but walking in self-sacrificial love. Verses 2-4. to four. Look with me. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but let there be thanksgiving. And then verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay? The verses that follow this tell us it's not just about walking that matters, but walking in self-sacrificial love. And Paul does something very interesting. He immediately attacks the sexual self. And I don't mean attacks. I mean addresses the sexual self. Why so? Well, he's described the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. That is what's in you. That is what you have put on. So walk in it. And there's nothing more juxtaposed to that than self-indulgence. You don't have to look far in our day and age to realize that even in a married relationship, much more outside of one, which is the playground that God gave for sex, it was the boundaries that He set, was that a man and a woman in committed covenantal vows of love to each other would greatly and vastly enjoy sex one with the other. But whether in that confine or as we see inappropriately outside of it, Sex is marked with self-indulgence. Self-sacrificial love says, I sacrifice myself for your benefit. Self-indulgence says, I'm going to sacrifice you for my benefit. And it applies to our physical bodies, brothers. And there's no place where this is more apparent than with our sexual self, our sexual lives. The way that we think and talk and live out sex. It was a problem in Ephesus and it's a problem in Dallas, Texas. Okay? And so he uses three words. He says sexual immorality, which is porneia in the Greek. Let me pause. Um, pornography is not a safer alternative to uh, physical actual sex outside of marriage. In both instances, there is a person or an image of a person that you're taking advantage of. That you are sacrificing for yourself. It's the essence of self-gratification. Okay, but he doesn't just say sexual immorality. He says impurity and covetousness. What a strange thing to say coveting. Wanting something that someone else has. But remember the original command. You shall not covet and it talks about your neighbor's wife. Well, that surely doesn't just mean I wish I had a wife like that one. Right? There's more implication to it than that. This covetousness is specifically in the, in the sexual realm. It's a desiring someone else's body that's not your own for your own gratification. Okay, And so the, the coupling of these terms is really just a way of saying, in this new self... Stop with all the sexual immorality. You have to walk in newness of life. Sex for you has been something to joke about and something to indulge in. But it's never yet been about self-sacrificial love. It's never yet been really primarily about the other person. Brothers, that's true if you're unmarried in here and you're not supposed to have sex. But it's also true for those of us who are married, isn't it? 
You can have sex for years and it never really be self-sacrificial. Never really be about the other person. It's just about me getting mine. It's about relief. The new self looks at sex through a totally different lens. It's actually a Christocentric lens, which gives some of us a little bit of shivers because we know that Jesus was a man. In the same way that He would self-sacrifice for our benefit. So in the most intimate of human actions, we should be willing to self-sacrifice for the benefit of another. And if we think that way, if we walk that way, it will eliminate sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. It will eliminate pornography. I will not use someone else for my gratification. I will expend myself for someone else's good. You see the difference? So walking in love in Christ means He transforms the sexual side of us too. So we become capable of loving as He did. And Ephesus had a problem, and so does Dallas, Texas in this realm. There's an overall dismissal of the sacredness of sex. It's commonplace. There's a complete ignoring of the boundaries that God has set. As a matter of fact, I would tell you it's gone so far that sexual liberation uh, is really just another way of saying self-indulgence. You define sex as you want it to be defined, with whoever you want it to be with, whenever you want it to happen. And if anyone tells you differently, they're a bigot, they're ignorant, they have no idea what they're talking about. You know what I hear when I say that out loud? I hear the groveling voice of the old self. It's the voice of the world. But the new self says, if you want fullness of life in sex, put this on and walk this way. Those boundaries form a playground. That playground has a fullness to it that the way of the world will never know. You have to be willing to sacrifice yourself for the sake of love. Because to be in Christ is to become as Christ, isn't it? That's not where he stops, though. He goes on and says, walk in light. Look at verses 8 to 14. I'm just going to read verse 8. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So it's not just that you walk, it's that you walk in self-sacrificial love and that you walk in light. Okay? These verses are telling us that uh, we need to expose those things that qualify as darkness. That's the way of the new self. Okay? Uh, light is defined here as all that is good and right and true. Darkness is the opposite of that. Darkness hides things. Darkness loves the shadows. Darkness loves half-truths. Darkness loves untruths. Okay? And darkness relishes in the realm of the secret. Brothers, nothing, nothing will stymie your walk and send you in the opposite direction quicker than the secret. In my years of ministry, which have not been that many, but it's been enough, there is almost always a correlation between someone who is walking away from God with a string of secrets right behind them. It may be one really large one, or a string of 12 seemingly small ones. But it makes sense. 
Because dark things grow in hiding. And, and this admonition here is to have put on Christ. Let the light of Christ shine on you. Okay? Um, in about four or five weeks, there's a group of high school students, 250 of them, that are heading to Florida. We do it every year. It's an annual Florida trip. I'm looking at some faces, even in this crowd, who have been on that trip since I've been a part of it or in charge of it. You know what happens on that trip, why it's so popular? Uh, the beach and Jesus. That's really it. It's not a magical formula. Okay, but what happens is these students, 250 of them, that's a lot of hormones, fellas. That is a lot of hormones. Okay? They, they load up in buses and they get there and there's an environment created where it is a light environment. It is a safe place to expose your secret. There's no threat of judgment. And to these students, there's no threat of consequence. There's the ability to draw things out of the dark and the shadows and to place them in the light and to breathe for the first time. And the experience of freedom that comes from that is the reason that the students spiritually want to be on this trip. It's more than the beach. I just wonder if any of us have secrets. If any of us have something that we're hiding. I know we do, because when I say that out loud, half the heads kind of all of a sudden want to read what's on the wall, you know? I'm not saying that because I want to expose you. I'm leaving a little bit of silence to say, be exposed. God is for you, not against you. And the old self will take your secrets and flap them around your ankles where you feel like you can't move and you don't know why. Well, walk in the light. And as it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and the light of Christ will shine on you. Because to be in Christ is to become as Christ. It's to learn to come out of hiding and into the truth. Okay? And then finally, and lastly, it's not just how you walk. It's that you walk in self-sacrificial love. A renewed sexual self. You walk in light. You no longer have secrets you hide in the darkness, but you also walk in wisdom. Beginning in verse 15, you see this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Do not be foolish. Don't be a fool. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers, this, these verses, the ones that follow, they tell us to practice wisdom. Okay? Wisdom is the practical knowledge by which we gain ultimate and lasting happiness. I'll say that one more time. Wisdom is the practical knowledge by which we gain ultimate and lasting happiness. Okay? I got that from John Piper. The fool seeks happiness in fleeting and temporary things. The wise man seeks happiness in ultimate and eternal things. 
The fool can be pictured as somebody who's making a steady diet of cotton candy. Nobody's going to judge him for that, right? It's sweet to the taste, but it's gone in an instant. It's common to man, we would all agree, cotton candy tastes good. But it won't last. And the fool runs after it. But the wise man, the wise man has a whole meal. Because he knows the ultimate and lasting happiness is going to come from discerning and walking according to the will of God. And it looks like this. It's real practical. He makes good use of time. He's not wasteful with time. Okay, Because it's a precious resource that can't be bought back. The Greek here in this verse actually makes that clear. We say making the best use of time, but it actually means having bought and redeemed the time. In other words, taking time and investing it well. Well, why so? Because a cotton candy guy is going to look at time as something to expend however he wants. And then he'll look backwards and go, what did I do today? You wasted time. But the wise man is going to look for ultimate things. Is going to look for eternal things. And is going to live those things out. Okay, But it says he lives for the will of the Lord. Uh, I just want to make one comment here. Only God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. No one else in here can say that about their own will. That's from Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may discern what the will of God is. Okay, And there's a general will, which is God's revealed will in Scripture that applies to every single person. And there, there's His particular will, which is His will for your life. What job should I take? Where should I move? Who should I ask out on a date? God, what do you want me to do today? Those are particular questions. Here's what happens. We get overly troubled with God's particular will for our lives, and we remain fairly ignorant about His general will. The thing already revealed in Scripture about purpose and direction. The do's and the do-nots. Okay, The general will of God was supposed to be like a window through which we would see into the particular will of our lives. Okay? And it's foolish to be so concerned with particular things about only my life to ignore the general will of God. It is wise to acquaint yourself so firmly in the Scriptures with the will of God for your life that you then have a passageway into which you ask the question, God, who should I date? God, should I take that job offer or this one? Does that make sense? Walking in wisdom means you're able to discern the will of the Lord. Jesus always seemed to do that, didn't He? They'd ask Him something and He'd say, I came to do the will of the Father. Yeah, but answer our question. Well, I came to do my Father's will. I don't do anything apart from Him. I only do what my Father wills. It seemingly is annoying. It's actually the path to life. We see that ultimately in Gethsemane when He says, not my will, even if it means death, let your will be done. He was very clear on what God's particular will was for his life because he was so filled with God's general will with what it meant to be human. Okay? To be in Christ is to become as Christ. 
And then finally this. It's not just walking. It's walking in wisdom. And this person is filled with the Spirit. Brothers, a lot of times in Scripture, and this is where we're closing, uh, being filled with the Spirit is likened to drunkenness. Because you're under the influence of something. And a lot of times whenever you see the two next to each other, be it uh, drunkenness on wine and uh, drunkenness on the Spirit, there's a necessary effect that comes. But there's a significant difference. In our Presbyterian circles, we sometimes celebrate drinking and, and even allow drunkenness far too much. That's a knock on me. It's a knock on, I think, most of you. We have to be careful, and here's why. It's not really about liberty to drink or not to drink. In almost all these instances, what it's saying is that the wise man knows this. When you are drunk with the Spirit, when you are filled up to the brim with the Spirit, the consequence that comes is actually self-control. You're never clearer. You're never more zeroed in. You're never more ready to do this walk and to follow the path of God. Your compass is pointing north and your thermometer says 98.6. But when you're, you're drunk on wine, it leads to what this Scripture says, debauchery. You're out of control. To be drunk on the Spirit is to be controlled. To be drunk on wine is to be out of control. The fool will choose wine almost every time. And in the Christian world, will choose it and then talk about being drunk on the Spirit as if it's this experience. And Paul's saying, stop getting drunk. Actually, get drunk on the right thing. Be intoxicated with Him. Walk in Him. Because that's what Jesus did. Do you know Luke 4, when Jesus is about to be tempted... This is what Luke says. Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led up into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He was a full of Spirit. Not being filled, a full of Spirit. He didn't do anything apart from the Spirit. And to be in Christ is to be as Christ. To imitate Him is everything. And so I want to encourage you, as you walk, know if you're walking and where you're walking, know that the immeasurable, timeless love of God is the thing that you have put on and grow up into it. And you'll find yourself starting to love a little more self-sacrificially as you take steps. You'll find yourself starting to expose secrets in your life because you desire the truth and you want to live an honest life. And you'll find yourself being filled with the Spirit, discerning what God's will is and walking in that way. Father, be with us now as we talk about these things. Give us the courage to come to You. Give us the courage to listen to You. Help us to do that as we listen to one another. Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You that we are in You, and because we are in You, we become like You.
May that happen more in us even today. Amen.